This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. From Joy 94.9 in Melbourne, I'm Stephanie Longmuir and you're on Dying to Tell, a podcast series where we explore end of life and death in a frank and honest way. In the late 19th century, when the average life expectancy was around 48, people confronted and talked about their mortality. Today, with our increasing longevity and death and dying often institutionalised, there's a real reluctance in Western society to talk about death. Today, we are asking death. Why so afraid? And hearing some really interesting responses from Dr. Jessica Zitter, a critical care and palliative care doctor, Helen Callan, death doula, and Molly Carlisle, the death talker. That's coming up on Dying to Tell. Selena, can you squeeze my hand? Here's the reality. We're all going to die. Everyone standing in this room is going to die one day. And it's good to have a little bit of a say in how. I want to make sure that she knows that that we've explored all the options. Every day, people are attached permanently to machines. My concern is we're going to cause more suffering without likely benefit. The other approach is let her pass naturally. It would feel like murder to pull her life support. If I had to make the decision for myself, then take me off, and if I breathe on my own, then that's fine. That's God's will. Amen. How would you feel if you were not getting better on a breathing machine? Then I don't want to be on a breathing machine. It's his decision, but I don't want to see him go. We're going to support you through this. She won't wake up from this in a meaningful way. Knowing at some point you got to get to that reality, and now it's here. Well, that clip was from the trailer of an Oscar-nominated documentary called Extremis that follows Dr Jessica Zitter, her patients and their families in a hospital ICU. Jessica is a critical care and palliative care doctor at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. She's the author of Extreme Measures... Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. And she's also the co-founder of Vital Decisions, a telephone-based counselling service for patients with life-limiting illness. She joined me on the line from California. Jessica, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about an initiative that you started last year. Uh, Well, it came to my attention last year through the Open IDO Challenge on Reimagining End of Life. And it was a program called Death Ed. And then I read about um, Death Ed in uh, the New York Times Sunday Review in February this year. And the article that you wrote for, for, the, for the New York Times started out, five years ago, I taught sex education at my daughter Tessa's class. Last week, I taught death education at my daughter Sasha's class. Why should death be considered more taboo than sex? Both are a natural part of life. Why do you think we are so afraid to talk about death, and especially with our children? Well, <clears throat> part of the reason I was late for this interview is because we were doing, um, uh, we were teaching some of the kids in the Oakland public schools uh, today here at our hospital, uh, a death education class. I think we like sex. I mean, I really do think that they're very, they're the same. It's the same paradigm, uh, actually. That we 
we think that these taboos, they're taboo subjects because we get uncomfortable. They're, they're uncomfortable, you know, sex for the reason that we don't like to talk about intimacy. We don't like to, you know, we were puritanical. Who, who knows exactly what the reason is, but we don't like to talk about sex in our, in our society. But I think that's for slightly different reasons. It's not, not, not this, this discomfort with the act, but it's this idea of this, this fantasy of perpetual life that we have as humans, that we want to survive. And, and particularly now that we have these distracted, you know, these distractions that we can, that we can, we can look at as some kind of a miracle cure and something to allow, distract us from the realities of death, which already is an, you know, an uncomfortable concept for a human, human genome. We're trying to survive. We're, 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 you know, it's evolutionary to, to want to stay alive. And so for these slightly separate but actually very similar reasons, we, these are two topics that we just feel uncomfortable talking about, and we don't want to, you know, we don't want to share them with our children, um, sex because it's embarrassing, and death because we're, we're afraid and we're sad, and, and it brings up these, this confrontation with, you know, our, ex, our existence, and that's very, very painful to do. And, uh, but the problem is that the result of not talking about these very important fundamental subjects that are a part of every human being's life, um, or most of us, but certainly death, everybody, is that we end up depriving uh, our population of basic knowledge, sort of, about how to conduct our lives and live as, as healthy a life as we can all the way to the very end. We deprive our children of this, we deprive our, our, the rest of our population, and we end up with the results that we have now, which is very serious public health crisis. Uh, bad dying. Jessica, I'm wondering, are there any studies that show how much understanding of death a child has at different ages? I know your program was for high school students and you're talking about year nine um, in particular, but um, at what age should we start talking to our children about death and, and where do we go to find guidance on language? And um, obviously you've talked about Go Wish, which sounds like a fantastic tool, but are there other tools that parents can, can source? You know, I'm, I'll tell you the honest truth. When I was... When, we were writing this up for the Open IDEO Challenge. I looked at some of the data on um, death education, and there was almost none. There was one class that I found for high school students in a in a school up in upstate New York uh, that was a year long curriculum um, run by a guy who was just interested in death. So he kind of took it upon himself to teach this class. But there were no, as far as I could find, there were no uh, death classes for high school students. There, there was a lot of debate online about whether or not you should talk to kids about high about death and much of it coming honestly from the conservative right saying no because you're going to cause uh, suicide and there's no evidence that I could find of any link between talking about death or death education and suicide so there was you know little bits here and there of, of stuff but there's really not a lot of data out there uh, about this this topic and um, you know I think that it's it's time for us to start looking at it we you know at this point I'd say now so in addition to these three classes that I taught in in high schools I've been teaching also some high school student uh, groups in who come into our hospital local children from uh, the, the local high schools who are interested in learning about healthcare you know, professions it's also been a very interesting experience there've been you know different issues get triggered for different groups i would say that it's been uh, a positive experience just today when i was teaching these high school students we watched the movie and then uh we stood up to talk about issues from the movie and one of the things that i, I was just so struck by these 
these, the sophistication of these kids. When I said, you know, tell me what you think about, do you think doctors are good at, at telling patients and families about their prognosis? I had to explain what prognosis meant. And a few hands kind of went up and said, yeah, I think, I think doctors are, are good at it. And I said to them, actually, let me tell you, the data do not actually show that. The data show that doctors are actually pretty poor at telling patients and families about what they think is going to happen. And so we went through, you know, why do you think that might be? And these kids were so astute. And they said, well, what about uncertainty? You know, which is a big thing that I like to talk about that, that you know, we hide in a way behind uncertainty and say, well, I'm not 100% sure, so I'm not going to tell you what I think. But they, these students agreed, well, that's not really fair because then you don't let people prepare for their own death. They also correctly identified that one, another reason doctors might not want to tell the truth is because they're afraid of not being liked. And I, again, pulled up some data and told them that it's true. Doctors aren't as well liked if they give bad news as when they give good news. Um, and that's a definite demotivator for, for telling people bad news. And so they were very engaged and they understood a lot of the issues. And I believe that just from a healthcare literacy perspective, if a kid hears this kind of information from a doctor, for example, saying, actually, we're not doing a good job telling you the truth, they may be more likely in the future to go and, and ask for the truth or demand the truth from the healthcare team when they have a sick loved one in the hospital. And I think that's the way we spread this kind of literacy and this kind of I said, true death and dying education and, and hopefully will change the way things are being done. Well, I wonder then, do doctors and nurses die differently from their patients? Well, that's um, a very important topic of, of discussion for a number of reasons. Number one, it certainly seems they would. Uh, based on my anecdotal experience, um, m most of my colleagues and, and friends and, and the nurses and all the people that I work with you know, who know about what it can look like, going to be more vigilant and, from my experience, are less likely to choose uh, these types of... or to, It's not a question of choosing but to end up on this, what I call end-of-life conveyor belt. You know, the end-of-life conveyor belt, let me just define, is a, this concept, this relentless, automatic application of increasing amounts of technology to dying bodies without any discussion. And I think, you know, people who know what that looks like, you know, certainly people who work in the intensive care unit, but doctors and nurses and other healthcare professionals in general wouldn't choose that. It's the grisly nature of what can happen on the end-of-life conveyor belt is what motivated me, made me realize that I, I couldn't continue to just blindly administer that anymore. There's a wonderful story in your book about the ICU nurse and her tattoo. Perhaps you'd like to share that. One day, about five or six years ago, I was at a conference called Mindfulness in the Intensive Care Unit. One of the, the things that does not uh, that is not a part of patient-centered care for the most part is mindfulness. So we don't tend to be contemplative and thoughtful and to process things in medicine. We just tend to act. And so this idea of mindfulness and really trying to be mindful in a place like the intensive care unit really kind of caught my, caught my eye. And I thought, well, that, that's interesting. Let me go to this. And I went to this conference at UCSF. The person running it was a, a man named Mitchell Levy, who's a very, very well-known ICU doctor here in America, who is a, has actually been one of the people who's worked on the sepsis uh, bundle and, and managing sepsis. But he also happens to be a Buddhist. He is also, in addition to solving the problem of sepsis, very interested in the idea that we should be more mindful as caregivers in an intensive care unit. And so he had this, this, this talk about, uh, that was geared towards healthcare providers. Most of the people there were nurses, not doctors. And one of the nurses at lunch um, said, well, you know, they're not getting me. I got this tattoo. And I looked at her and said, what do you mean? And she kind of pulled her shirt aside and she showed me this uh, tattoo on her chest over her heart that said, no code. 
you know, I had heard many, many people jokingly talk about tattooing, you know, do not resuscitate on their chest. I'd never seen anybody actually do it, but this woman had done it. Bringing to life conversations on life's only inevitability. We are dying to tell on Joy 94.9. The website of our next guest claims that if death freaks you out, Molly can help. Molly Carlisle, AM, is a multi-award winning death and grief specialist, palliative care activist, author and international speaker. Let's have a listen to what Molly has to say about having conversations about death. And Molly, you know, you've had an extensive background in palliative care. For a lot of people, those sort of conversations are really, really difficult for a lot of family members. I mean, I know myself, I find it very easy to talk about this stuff because I work um, in the funeral profession. So for me, it's second nature. But for families who, who find it very difficult to talk about this sort of stuff, is there someone that they can have a conversa- this conversation with who's not a family member? And ideally, you know, when should they have that conversation? Look, my, my view, Stephanie, is that people should be having that conversation all the time. Like, I've had the conversation with my grown-up kids. Every Christmas, you know, we sort of revisit our advanced care plans and last Christmas, my middle son said, do you know what, Mum, I, I was just thinking in the last couple of months, I really want my ashes scattered under a Japanese maple. And I said, oh, cool. So I know that now. We all know that now. And that'll happen. And it's not like we spend the whole of Christmas dinner talking about dying, but everyone sort of updates their plans at at that time because we're all together. And... So it means everyone's on the same page. When should it happen and who should it happen with? I think the conversation should be happening from the time you've got little kids. So when little kids start asking about dying, we need to not avoid the issue. We need to stop what we're doing, sit down and answer their their questions. But in order to do that, we need to be informed ourselves. And that means confronting your own challenges and fears around mortality but the bottom line is some of us will never have children some of us will never get married some of us will never get a driver's life some of us may never vote but all of us are going to die so why aren't we talking about it you know I just I just don't understand I don't understand the apprehension we all have about it I do in a way but like we've got over that in terms of sex education when I was, you know, 17 or 18, people didn't talk about using condoms and safe sex and all of that. But everyone talks about that with their kids now because we know how important it is. You know, you, you don't give your kids, your, your 18-year-old, the keys to the car and say, go off and drive without making sure they've had driving lessons and, and they've done the hours they need to have in their book. You don't throw your child into a river unless they've had swimming lessons. This is exactly the same. We need to be informing our children from the time they're really little that life ends eventually. And kids want to know about it. They ask questions about it. Mm. But the problem is grown-ups either change the subject or they avoid answering the questions honestly and then the children develop the same angst around death that the parents have because they think it's something secret and scary. As a palliative care expert, what changes, Molly, have you noticed in our understanding of death, particularly over the the last 10 years, as I think that we are becoming better at talking about it? 
I think we are. And I look, I think to me, Stephanie, that the important thing is that we demedicalize the whole dying thing. And that doesn't mean you pull apart a really good system of palliative care mm. and and open it up to the market because there is certainly a move, you know, the recent Productivity Commission report talks about competition and a user choice and all of that stuff. Well, you know, if you're two months off dying and someone says to you, you can choose out of these five services, like you're not in a place to make a choice. And most people haven't even talked about what those choices could be up until that point. So there's that end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum is that local communities are starting to say, you know what, the lady next door to me is not really well. How can I help out? The compassionate communities movement that that really started here with Alan Callagher from La Trobe University like 18 years ago has grown in the UK and in Canada. And that's all about getting local communities pulled together when someone's really sick. And it doesn't mean you have to go and wipe their bum or, or wash them in their bed or whatever else. But it means that someone's coordinating the fact that seven lamb casseroles don't turn up on the same day. And, you know, that there's that the kids are picked up from school and the lawns are mowed and, you know, people, the person's taken to their doctor's appointment and that the carer isn't left to do all of that stuff. And for me, that, that's a great that's a really great leap forward. So, Molly, what is your most important message to people wanting to face immortality? Just talk about it. You know, talking about death doesn't make you die quicker. You die when you're going to die. And all of us are going to die one day. So I would go back to what I said to you earlier, Stephanie, about, um, you know, we talk about sex, we talk about you know, driving, we talk, we do all of this stuff to keep us safe. And this is just another way of keeping us safe, I think, is to have these conversations, to be open about it. No matter how uncomfortable it is, it's reality. And if you can, if you can put aside your own apprehensions to listen to someone else's views about what they value and what means, you know, what's the stuff that that matters to them, then you're giving them a huge gift and hopefully you get that gift in return. Thank you, Molly. Thank you for joining us on Joy 94.9 and uh, for sharing amazing insights into, uh, into talking about the future, really, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, who, who knows, Stephanie? Like, I can't remember if I'm on my first go-around or my 75th go-around. But the bottom line is when it when it's my turn, I don't want people shying away from the subject. I want to be able to talk about what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling and, you know, how it is for me right now. And I want to be... I, I want to have the people I love being able to manage that, you know, and I hope that I'll be able to manage that for them. Lying to rest the clichés and platitudes and bringing to life conversations on death and dying. We are Dying to Tell on Joy 94.9. Gina, the first interview that we did for this series was on a Saturday morning back in July. We had invited Helen Callanan, a death doula, into the studio and had Jessie William, the Executive Director of the Groundswell Project, on the line. 
and we were talking to them mostly about Dying to Know Day, which was back in early August. Tina, what did you make of that first interview and, and them being dragged off two weeks later <laughs> to the event at Federation Square? I'll be honest, Steph, this was the first interview of this series and even though after speaking to you I knew this was going to be a bit different, it wasn't going to be all gloom and doom, it was actually going to be uplifting, I was still a little bit nervous and then our doula walked into the room and she was just so full of life, like she's just one of these women that can cure you with a hug. Well, it kind of settled those fears of, is this going to be doom and gloom? Because it was probably one of the most inspirational and life-affirming interviews we've had, well, I've had here at Joy uh, on all the shows that I've worked on. So it just made me really excited about what we're going to be covering. And the event, I mean, once you finally found the event, it was quite funny getting there and you're like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm, I'm at the event, Steph, where are you? You'd, you'd wandered off to another area thinking... I was in another area of Federation Square where there was a little... <laughs> burning pyre and about three yes. people and I thought oh my goodness this can't be the, the event <laughs> whereas I'm at this pumping event with so many people there for and and just I, I think the choir was one of the most yes. beautiful things that yeah, I, we got to see we got a, a sample of the choir but so many people were there and and everyone just wanted more information about not only their own services but services for people they loved and it was just it was like another kind of workshop and you get a show bag and and it was just a lovely day it was really Great well turnout. run and we'll talk about that again next year because it's something that I'm very happy to promote because it was a really beautiful um, event and um, we both enjoyed it but perhaps in introducing Helen um, and Jesse we should explain what a death doula is. Gina, do you um, do you want to do that? The best way I can remember, I mean, death doula, I'd heard doula in terms of midwives. Yes. In, in bring, you know, in kind of bringing babies or bringing humans into life. So the death doula is the opposite. So she helps you. She's almost a party planner for your, for your funeral. She kind of helps you with sometimes it's administration, sometimes it's just hand-holding at, yeah. at, at um, the end of life. And she is. She kind of is your advocate, in yeah. you know, I, I, and probably because, you know, most people at that stage will start losing self-determination. So it would be quite wonderful to know that you've got someone there that you've had these conversations with yeah. to make sure you've got an advocate in those moments because for family members, that could actually be a really hard thing to do. It is, I think, and I think, you know, more than the individual it is for family in helping them make difficult decisions yeah. at a time when they're, you know, they're usually exhausted and, yeah. and, and dealing with a whole lot of emotions. So, yeah, an important job. So let's hear what Helen and Jesse have to say about our fear of talking about death. So why are we so afraid of talking about death? And I know Jesse touched on medicalisation mm -hmm. and, and, you know, sort of the over-sterilisation of the whole funeral and death care process. Mm. What, what do you think, we, why, why are we are so afraid of talking about death? Well, I think for me what I see is that people have, and, and if you like here in Australia in particular, I'll speak about that, is that, you know, we have a she'll be right, mate. You know, we don't want to be a burden. Um, we have all of these attitudes and it's like if I don't talk about it, it won't happen. You know, it's almost like a superstitious thing rather than people getting real and going, you know what, I don't know anyone who hasn't, who's got out of here without dying. You know, it's coming our way for every single one of us. So I, I think it's a lot of internal um, questions. And I'm sure Jesse, um, I'd love to hear what Jesse's, um, you know, got to say about that too. But I see a lot of it as being personal fear that, that has become cultural and it's become a habit. Jesse, would you like to add to that those sentiments? 
Oh, yeah, echoing everything um, Helen has said. Um, I, and I also think the, the paradox is that there's a belief that we notice in our workshops that comes through, which is if I talk about it, it will happen. So <laughs> there's, a, there's an opposite superstition. And, um, and look, you know, honestly, I think the only thing I would have to add there is this, you know, loss and grief and sadness are uncomfortable emotions. And we all know what our daily lives are like in, in this world right now. And it's this, they're stuffed full of ideas and thoughts and things, um, usually sort of past focused or future focused, but not necessarily present focused. And to be in the present means to feel feelings and to feel feelings means to feel loss and to feel loss is uncomfortable. So I think that is how I would sort of unpack some of those reservations that we have. But as Helen said, when we, when we invite people to talk about death, we're actually inviting people to talk about their mortality. And when we invite people to talk about their mortality, what comes to life is the richness of our relationships, the depth of our love, the appreciation we have for being alive. And that is the juicy bit. That's kind of almost feels like a secret that, what we call the deathies, the people who, you know, really lean into this conversation need to share more, that it's actually a very delicious conversation and it brings brings into light just how you are living your life and then you make the most of it, right? You enhance it. So, Jesse, how do you start this conversation? You just do it, huh? <laughs> you know, we get asked at Grantsville a lot from bureaucrats and how, how, do we, how do we get people to talk? And our answer is always the same, just do it. You got to have the ovaries big enough sometimes <laughs> just to do it, but just do it. And so we model this. So for example, I, I talk about death in a corporate environment. We run this program called the compassionate workplace. I run workshops at seven thirty in the morning for, you know, sometimes it's a room of bankers talking about death and dying over coffee and croissants in a high towered building before they start their day. And and at 7.30 in the morning, I welcome them and I say, we're going to talk about death. Crack, done, let's do it. And everybody starts talking. Mm. On this podcast, Gina, we did hope to lay the platitudes and the cliches to rest um, through frank and honest discussion about end of life and death and dying. But I'd actually like to close with some words by Khalil Gibran, who is a writer, poet and artist. And I hope this isn't too cliched. Um, he said, on death. You would know the secret of death, but how shall you find it unless you seek it in the heart of life? For life and death are one, even as the river and the sea are one. That's beautiful. It's beautiful and it's kind of true. You know, life is part of death and, you know, we have to look at it head on because it's there. And even though we've we've put it into hospitals and, and outsourced it to death care professionals... It's, it's still part of our life. So next time on Dying to Tell, we are lawyering up as we speak to Melbourne's top legal experts on some really great new legislation that can help you with planning for the future. So if you're dying to know, join us on Joy 94.9 where we are dying to tell.
Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.